to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. It's my great pleasure to welcome back uh, uh, Julia Angwin, who is uh, something of the, I don't know, the world expert, but certainly someone who has made a specialty of the issue of internet privacy and privacy generally. We're delighted to have you with us. We're delighted to have you with us, Julia. And uh, the, the floor is yours. Julia is a, you know, a celebrated journalist in the Wall Street Journal and ProPublica. She's uh, got a new book out called, what, what is it? Um, Dragnet Nation. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dragnet Nation, that's it. That, is it. Is it out or is it about? It's out. It's out. It's out. It's out. Okay, good. Mine. And uh, <laughs> so uh, the floor is yours. Okay, Welcome. Great. Glad to have you. Great. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. You know, I came here um, a year ago when I just, it was January, I think, of last year, and I had just started writing the book. And actually, my talk here at Shorenstein was when I kind of first exposed any of my ideas to the light of the public. And it really helped me in my writing and thinking about the book. And so I appreciate it. You guys are kind of part of my creative process here. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk about um, my book, what I, um, uh, but before I did that, I thought I would just tell you guys who I am, what, what am I doing here, what possible authority do I have. <laughs> so, um, so I just want to start with the fact that I'm a child of technology. I grew up in Palo Alto. This was my first computer. This is where I learned to type. And um, people claim that digital natives are all, you know, sort of sub-20s. And I, I claim it from my lofty age, <laughs> much older. Um, and I... Um, I really love technology. So I come to the issue of privacy as somebody who wants every gadget and who wants all the benefits of technology and has really bought into the promises of technology. Um, I wrote my first book um, about technology uh, in 2009. I was convinced that social networking was going to be really big. I was right. I might have picked the wrong social network to write about, but that's okay. Um, in the process of writing this book about MySpace is when I got interested in privacy, because I realized that MySpace and social networks in general, which I perceived of as technological businesses, had a new business model, something I hadn't seen in my life in Palo Alto, which was basically amassing personal data and using it as a lure for marketers. And so suddenly this industry that I had always covered, technology, was really in a personal data, data business. And so when I came back from book leave, I decided, you know, I want to look into this, what, who else has my personal data, like what's going on? So I decided I would launch an investigation. Um, and I launched this series in 2010 called What They Know. And of course, now I joke that I should do another series called What Don't They Know? <laughs> but at the time, it was revelatory. Um, we wrote about, for instance, how all these websites have invisible technology embedded in them that tracks your movements. These are basically um, cookies and tracking beacons. This was dictionary.com, which had, I think, more than 200 tracking files installed on your computer if you visited 10 pages of the site. Um, 
we showed how cookies, these innocuous little strings of numbers and letters that are assigned to your computer, can contain interesting information. For instance, we got one company, which I think later regretted it, to tell us what they knew about a cookie user. And they had correctly identified this woman as 26-year-old female, her favorite movies, where she lived. Um, and so we were just at the beginning of sort of explaining to people how much was known about you. We also tested apps. And we showed how they were all sending your data. Pandora, in particular, was one of the worst offenders. If any of you guys are using that app, it sends a lot of data to third parties. Um, and we did it all by a chart of like who's sending what where. I mean, like Pandora sends data on what music you like or other things? Well, there's all sorts of things they send. Sometimes they send your contacts, your location, your phone identifier. Um, all sorts of information. I'd have to look back at the exact Pandora transmissions. And you know, it's interesting, um, jumping ahead slightly, this seemed somewhat innocuous because it was going to advertisers, but then there was the Snowden document that showed how the NSA was piggybacking on those exact transmissions from the apps to the advertisers that literally blew me away. I was like, they have time to be tracking, <laughs> jumping on that piece of data as well? Um, Uh-oh. Did I do something? Oh, like okay. <laughs> um, we also showed how this data was being used to really start doing something called price discrimination, basically offering people different prices based on the information known about them online. So for instance, we showed how Capital One was basically showing you a different card based on the initial assessment it made when you arrived at the website of who you were. And that stuff on the right is actually the, the traffic, we, um, the computer code passing between this guy's computer and Capital One. And in the plain text of that transmission, they had assessed him as a downscale with only some college and they gave him a middling card. <laughs> now, of course, you could apply for any card, um, but it was a steering uh, into what they thought that he wants. And I think this is something that we're going to see more and more of as the data about us becomes more robust. Um, we found an, a really interesting case of a car dealership that when you emailed them to um, set up a deployment for a test drive, they actually managed to track your browsing habits um, through a technique that Bruce would know, it's history sniffing, and basically saw where you had already been looking online for cars. So by the time you get to the lot, you know, they have a lot more information about you than you might want them to have in a negotiation like that. Um, we also looked into the government and government surveillance. We talked about license plate tracking, which is across the country, and um, many police departments have it, and in fact, <laughs> this guy was a uh, repo man, so some of the private repo men have also gotten into um, license plate tracking because it's actually perfectly legal to drive around and take pictures of people's plates all day. Um, we also uh, looked at the, something, we did the surveillance catalog, we looked at all of the different um, spyware that is being sold to governments around the world and um, since that time of course a lot of sad stories have come out about how those are particularly used against journalists to monitor them in repressive regimes. And then, of course, the story we didn't get, but uh, <laughs> it was a really big story, was the NSA. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, the Snowden revelations came out when I was halfway through the book. Um, I thought I was going to have more time to write my book, and then my publisher called me. I still remember, he was like, does this thing have anything to do with what you're writing about? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I think it does, actually. So I had kind of a book in hand. I was lucky in that way that um, I had already decided to focus on indiscriminate, ubiquitous surveillance. And to be honest, before Snowden's revelations, I had many more examples in my book of commercial surveillance. And I had some suspicions about the government, but I didn't have 
as much um, information about what they were doing, but boy, did Snowden deliver on that promise. Um, and so the ubiquitous uh, indiscriminate surveillance was going on at a far greater scope than I imagined, and I think I probably was more paranoid than most of you guys, I would hope. Um, just as a reminder, you know, there was the, the prison program with all of our favorite services and how they hand stuff over to the government. Um, this slide, I think, still remains the most shocking of all of the slides, um, although Bruce might disagree with me, but this is the one about hacking into a Google data center. And I think, um, you know, I think that companies like Google participated with the government because they received court orders and it was their legal obligation to participate in project in programs like PRISM. But this was actually breaking and entering in, in a way that I think really upset those companies and I think legitimately, right, uh, made it feel like a lawless operation. Um, so, of course, the question that arises from all this years of news about privacy is, is there any hope, right? Is privacy dead? And this is the question I get all the time. Why should I care? I've given up. It's hopeless. So in some ways, my book was really an investigation into whether there was any hope. That's really what I set out to try to find out. Um, I did. I basically decided that I would try to protect my privacy in a way that also allowed me to live in the modern world. Right? I'm a mother. I have two kids. I can't afford to actually go off the grid in some meaningful way. So this was not a exercise in like a living, you know, like in biblical times. This was just a, I am going to try to see, can I get the benefits of technology, but try to limit the downsides. So the very first thing I did was I quit using Google search. Because my search history is actually very revealing. When I looked back at it, if you find, if you actually use Gmail, you can see um, in your account settings, there's a section called web history, and you can see all your searches. Once you look at them, you realize, at least for me, I realized how my mind, it was, a, it was so intimate. It was like every thought I had, I sort of Googled it, and then immediately my next thought and sort of the day's progression, you could see. And it was more intimate than a diary. And I just thought, you know, I don't want this stored forever. I found my records at Google, for instance, were stored dating back to 2006. And they don't appear to have any intention of deleting them. And so I moved to DuckDuckGo, which doesn't store any records. DuckDuckGo uh, doesn't log any information, doesn't know any information about me. It also means that they don't know where I am. So whenever I search for a natural history museum, I get the one in the UK first. Because that's what they think. I don't know. They're just like, maybe that's the best natural history museum out there. Um, you know, and it's just interesting to remind yourself, like, what happens when you Google uh, natural history. I did this in a D.C. hotel room, and they immediately come up with Washington, D.C., right? And it reminds you that not everything that you type in is the input into Google. There are more inputs into your search than what you see. And I prefer to be in control of those inputs. And in the end, I end up having to type those two extra words, New York. You know, and I've decided those two words are not too high a price for me to pay for my privacy. Um, leaving Gmail was harder. Um, <laughs> there are not good options for privacy protecting email. I ended up joining this uh, Rise Up, which is a collective. Um, and you have to sign a manifesto saying that you're against capitalist oppression, which I have to say was actually difficult for me because I was working at the Wall Street Journal at the time. <laughs> and I decided that I was against capitalist oppression because I'm against oppression, right? But I, my, my employer's tagline was adventures in capitalism. <laughs> so, um, so it's not for everyone. It also has the smallest quota ever. And so I constantly have to go in and delete my emails. Um, 
which is, by the way, a very privacy-protecting move, <laughs> and then, then the data is no longer there. But I wish there were more options on the email front. Um, it's hard because of uh, what happened with LavaBit. Edward Snowden's email provider had to shut down, and I think that was a real, um, that really chilled a lot of the other email providers from trying to, to do that. Um, I unfriended everybody on Facebook, um, including my mother, who was annoyed. And um, I basically decided that my list of associations is really private information, equivalent to my search history, because I am basically, I think I'm a really individualistic person, but if you look at my friends, they basically we all like the same food and the same music, and we're kind of the same, you know? And I think that revealing that without any sort of return on that investment for me and no ability to control it, right? Of course, Facebook has privacy controls, but even I, who spend my life studying their privacy controls, cannot keep a handle on all the changes. So I decided I just couldn't reveal my friends, but I wanted to have a, like, a page. So my page basically says, I'm, he I'm not here. <laughs> I don't have any friends, but you can hang out here if you feel like it. Um, I deleted LinkedIn, which even was even more painful because I was worried I would never find a job again. Um, but, you know, I actually found a job right after that, so it turned out okay for me. <laughs> um, I, de I decided to protect my web browsing, so I use this thing called Aviator, which basically has a bunch of security and privacy features built in. But you can do the same thing with um, adding a tool like Disconnect um, or Ghostery. Um, both of those block almost all of the invisible ad tracking that I showed in the original slide about dictionary.com. And then I used something called HTTPS Everywhere, which just makes sure that your traffic between your computer and the internet is encrypted. And essentially, that is incredibly important in public Wi-Fi, for instance. You don't want somebody else in the cafe to be uh, able to access your traffic. So all of you should install those things on your computers right away. Um, and then when you want to go really into super uh, private browsing, um, I recommend something t called Tor. The problem with Tor is it, it works pretty well, but I... Um, it basically make, masks your location. So for, if I'm sitting here in Boston, it can look like I'm browsing from Amsterdam. The only problem is I am browsing from Amsterdam, so like my, my surfing is much slower. And so when I clocked it, it was you know, significantly slower. So I, unfortunately, I don't use it as much as I should. I break it out for sort of important moments in time. And then, of course, um, when you really want to go crazy down, down the anonymity line, which most of you probably won't, probably Bruce and I are probably the only two users of this product. Um, but it is a, oh, okay, good. You boot from a flash drive on a, um, on a clean machine, or at least I bought mine off eBay, but <laughs> um, bad idea. <laughs> I, I put mine anonymously from Best Buy remainder table. <laughs> right, okay, so. <laughs> so explain what that was. Oh, sorry. The... The machine, no, the Tails. Tails is basically an operating system. So instead of running off of um, the Macintosh OS or the Windows, you're actually booting from, you stick a thumb drive or a CD into your machine and boot off of that, which allows you to know that you're really only on that software. So even if there's some sort of spyware planted on the machine, you're basically operating at a different level. Um, I would say that it's definitely not for everyone. Um, I got an encrypted cloud service um, because I didn't want to store everything in Google Docs and have them read it. So I pay for the Spider Oak encrypted um, cloud storage. It basically encrypts the data as it leaves my machine and before it gets up to the cloud. And the thing is about these types of systems, though, is that they can't um, 
read my data. And then I'm the only one who can open it with my password. So if I lose my password, it is there's no forgot password button. So one part of the equation of going down this privacy road is you have to be much more careful about your passwords. So I, for instance, write them down and keep them in safe places because um, I can't afford to lose them. But it also gives me the comfort that no one else can see my data. Um, and then I got really crazy with my privacy journey and I um, created a fake identity. Um, I, I mean, not I actually took my inspiration from Ida Tarbell, a crusading journalist, a heroine of mine from the turn of the century. And so uh, there were a bunch of things I just couldn't do um, without, um, with technology. So I set up a new identity, Ida Tarbell, and I got her a bunch of stuff. I got her a post office box, a um, no, not a post office box, a, um, a postal address at a friend's house, um, an American Express card, which was basically just tied to my account. So I told American Express just add, like, as if it's a kid to my account that I pay for. Um, an Amazon account, open table account. And this allowed me to basically do commerce because it's hard to do online commerce anonymously. But with this credit card and that Amazon account, all of a sudden, all my purchases of the of books about the history of the NSA and about surveillance are all going to that account. And I just find that more comforting to have my reading records under a different name. Obviously, any investigator who wanted to would be able to eventually figure it out. But that's sort of my point, which is to lift myself out of indiscriminate surveillance and make it so that they have to try to get me. They have to actually want me. And I should hopefully be a suspect in that case. Um, and now, so those were my fairly successful operations, but then I had some for unsuccessful parts of my privacy journey. So data brokers, I tried to figure out who had my data. These are the people who buy and sell basically mailing lists of your name, address, all the things you buy, your likes, dislikes, your property records. I couldn't even find a list of them. I, it took me a while to compile my list of 212, and then of those, only 92 offered opt-outs. Many of them I couldn't complete, actually, because they required... Um, me to submit additional information that seemed like too much information and I wasn't willing to make that trade. Um, and actually only 13 of them was able to obtain the data about me to see what they had about me. And the data about me actually ranged from completely wholeheartedly absolutely accurate to wildly wildly inaccurate and to be honest I couldn't decide which one bothered me more. You know, the really accurate ones were so creepy, but the really inaccurate one, for instance, there was one company that had this, you know, very inaccurate portrait of me as a, I think it was a single mother with no college education and um, very low income. And basically, when I looked on their website to see, well, what are they going to do with this information? They said, you know, we're kind of an alternative credit score. So basically, people use us to assess your financial abilities in... <laughs> situations where they don't, I guess, want to buy the credit score. And I thought, well, this isn't going to work out for me. <laughs> um, so, and the other thing about this whole opt-out process that was really frustrating was it rewards the bad actors. So the good actors, like Spokio, actually took me out of there, right? There's a search, and I don't live in any of those places. Those are not me. Uh, and then the bad actors, I'm totally available. All my different addresses ever have ever lived. Um, and so it really doesn't incentivize good behavior. So the people who don't allow opt-outs now have my data, and my data is more scarce, so it's probably more valuable to them. And the other thing I was very unsuccessful at was my cell phone. Um, my cell phone is with me everywhere. It is the perfect tracking device, and it is constantly transmitting data that I cannot see or audit or even tell whether it's being transmitted. 
Um, and so it is what I, I call it pocket litter because this is a spycraft term of art, which is when you would find a suspect. This is sort of a CIA term, I believe. Um, you would look in their pockets to find the phone numbers of their associates, and that would help you build your social network. Well, now we're all carrying the ultimate pocket litter. Like every single associate is in our pocket at all times. Um, and there's a whole commercial business around tracking your location of your phone through the Wi-Fi signal. So not only does the cell carrier have every bit of information, but there's all these different companies that um, basically set up little devices to ping the Wi-Fi of all the phones that walk by. And then they can see who's walking by their store or whatever it is that they want to know. Um, there are some encrypted apps, so I set up, this is Whisper Systems, Red Phone, and Secure Text, and so you can do encrypted um, calls on top of the phone, um, and that provides some amount of uh, privacy, but truthfully, like, I think Bruce and I might be the only people who use those things, so we can talk to each other, but ultimately, like, both parties have to have it, and, like, I was unsuccessful at getting anyone other than my children, actually. My children love the encryption. They're like, oh, it's secret? Okay, yeah. Um, my husband's like, are you kidding me? I'm not done. <laughs> You're going to just have to send me plain text. <laughs> so then I ended up having to get Ida a phone because <laughs> I realized that, like, the only way for me to really protect myself was to have a phone with a different name because it's still going to transmit all those data, so I might as well have it in somebody else's name. So now Ida has a phone. Problem is that Ida and I are very similar. <laughs> we go to the same places. We call all the same people. There was a location. There was a study recently that said it only takes four uh, unique location points to identify uh, anyone individually. So, anyone who really looked hard at this data would very quickly uh, find that me and Ida were the same. So then I got to a very sad point of putting the phone into this bag. This is a Faraday cage, and it blocks all the signals. Then you really know your phone is secure. But on the other hand, you can't use it. So that was a sad, that is the sad coda to my cell phone journey. So in the end, I kind of found that, that there were, I had some success, but I couldn't do, I couldn't get out of the data brokers. I couldn't really control my phone. Um, the, my endpoints for encryption is a sort of a subtle point, but basically buying computers off of eBay is not the, you know, to have a specialized system on is probably not optimal. And I also didn't have any assurances that what I was using really worked. I didn't have a way to assess whether I was actually gaining privacy out of this. So many of this stuff is ephemeral. I can't actually audit it. And in fact, I had some bad experiences where I paid two different companies to opt me out of some of the biggest data brokers. Both of them failed to complete the task, and one of them, I think, shut down the service after I um, wrote about it. But it basically... Um, it showed me that this is also an area where you have to be careful because it's an ephemeral product and there will be people who will try to take advantage of that to charge people money. Um, I ended up wondering if privacy was becoming a luxury good. I didn't, I used a lot of free software, but in the end when I added up everything I spent last year, it was $2,200, which is a lot of money, for especially when you're not even totally succeeding. <laughs> um, and some of that was for these services that were fraudulent, right, that I ended up having to dispute. And no, uh, nobody else would really know they were fraudulent. I had the privilege of being a reporter and calling all the data brokers to say, um, hey, did my opt-out work? So, and I also worried just do we want this to be something you can buy, that only some people can buy privacy. So that is the somewhat, um, I guess I'm ending on a sad note. I'm trying to be optimistic, <laughs> but um, ultimately that is my journey, and I'd love to take questions. Let me uh, ask the first, and then we'll open it. Um, 
Where do you see this going? I mean, if you're looking five years from now, say, what do you see? Well, unfortunately, all the tools of surveillance are getting better, and um, they're getting better faster. For instance, facial recognition is improving dramatically. And I, I have to say, I think it's going to be a game changer when facial recognition really comes into the fold, because right now, for instance, I can erase the cookies on my computer. But when your face is the cookie, your face is, like you walk into the store and they basically take a photo of you and immediately know, pull up the data broker file, they have your income, your spending levels, right? All, life is gonna be so different in that world. Um, and I'm worried about that. I think that's gonna change our social dynamics in ways that I'm, I'm not happy about. Um, but on the other hand, I do feel like the NSA and Snowden revelations have awoken people to the idea that this might have gone too far and that there maybe we should rein it in. And so it's possible that we will readjust in a way that could be really good. You said, you said earlier when you and I were talking that you found no constituency that seems to be ex exercised about this subject. Why do you think? Well, it's actually, it's, I always compare it to the environment. So it's a collective problem. It's hard to say I personally am individually harmed by um, privacy breaches, right? Because if I don't get a job or I don't get, um, or I'm getting charged higher prices, but I don't know it and I don't know why they've made those decisions about me, I can't attribute that harm to the personal data collection. And that is similar to environmental problems. People's um, coughs or cancers or whatever are hard to attribute to an individual piece of pollution. And that's actually why that we came up with this interesting collective approach to the environment, which is we passed laws that regulated pollution. And we also have this interesting legal mechanism, which I think will never happen with privacy, but of Superfund, where actually they don't even have to show who was liable for the pollution, the polluters have to pay if they could remotely be liable. I think it's unlikely to happen in this arena, but I think it's probably going to need a similarly collective approach. Let me open it to uh, students first. Yes. Hi, my name is Sanjay Gokhale. I'm a Mercury MBA student here. And um, I work for Microsoft, Xbox specifically, and specifically Xbox Live, which is online gaming entertainment service. And uh, we did a ton of stuff that was based on identity, which racked up, you know, it was profits for us. And did feel somewhat conflicted while I was doing it. Nothing illegal, obviously. Uh, <laughs> uh, but my question is, uh, I actually have two questions. Uh, first question is, uh, when the transgressions of private sector are so severe, uh, uh, why do we all get so riled up by government simply reading who am I sending emails to? And if some of those people that I'm sending emails to are foul players, comparing that with Google uh, sending cars around to locate where I live, where I go, and all of that stuff, which I find far more invasive of my privacy as opposed to, sure, you can know who am I sending emails to. That's number one. Number two is, uh, you did end up painting a very grim picture because, and, and it, maybe it is a grim picture, because all of those things that you did, and as you admittedly said, you weren't all that successful, were, uh, uh, point, I, I doubt if 0.5% of population would be even capable of doing those things. I won't be, right? So then what is, what is your sort of recommendation or what are your thoughts on 
who should be tackling these issues and what can be done about it? Well, let me start um, with your government versus commercial because I get this question a lot. And what's interesting to me is that it's 50% of the time it's framed the way you frame it and then 50% of the time it's framed as like the only thing I care about is government, not commercial. So I think it's people have their own personal concerns. And the way that people in computer security talk about that is like, what is your threat model? What are you afraid of? You know, And this is actually why people always have the misimpression that kids don't care about privacy. You know, they say, oh, my kids don't care about privacy. They're, like, all over the place on Facebook, blah, blah, blah. What they don't realize is their kids want privacy from them, the parent. You are the, and I am the NSA to my kids, right? They, they're, like, they're, like, that's why they love these encryption apps. They're, like, that's awesome. I want privacy from my mom, right? And so everyone's threat model is different. And so... I think that um, I'm, I happen to be outraged by all of it, so that's like convenient, but I think that one reason that government just has to be in the equation and why we have to worry about government surveillance is because they have the power to actually deny you of life and liberty, right? They actually could put you in jail, and Google currently cannot do that as far as I know. And so I think that that just has to put them in a different category. And truthfully, personal data has been used already in ways that I think are pretty reprehensible. For instance, the no-fly list. You can be put on the no-fly list, and you will never know why you were placed on it. You cannot dispute that data. You cannot even see it. And so, like, maybe you weren't emailing a really bad person, but maybe you didn't do anything bad yourself, right? And the fact that you can't fight that currently is, I think, really outrageous. And I actually feel like that's what it comes down to on the commercial side, too, which is I found myself, as I saw this data, I was just really outraged that I couldn't fight it. I didn't have any rights, right? I didn't have the right to demand that these data brokers hand it over, and I didn't have the right to say, you can't use this to charge me more money for something in the future. And that is ultimately what I wanted, is I wanted rights around my data. It's going to be out there. Just existing in the world, we transmitting data to each other. We used to be all analog, now it's digital. But the truth is, what we haven't got is any sort of regime that limits the people who have data from doing whatever they want to it. I mean, the, I make this joke sometimes. Google could seriously tomorrow change its privacy policy to say, we're transferring all of your data to North Korea. Like, and then it would be like, well, you agreed to the privacy policy, right? I mean, there's no, there's actually no legal regime that would prevent that. And I don't think they're going to, but it's just worth remembering that there's no law, it's a lawless area right now. Can I? Yeah. yeah can I add something to that? Because if you're, if you're a journalist, as I am, you, you just completely understand why you don't want the government being it, what they might do. Because just look at, just look at what happens when they define you as an enemy, as, as Chris Christie has done, did, and, and he stopped, you know, he stopped the highways. But you know, or as 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 Karl Rove did, defining enemies of the party as enemies of the state. And so, you know, so that's that's how then they can justify getting getting your your data and harming you you know so Fair enough. my profession doesn't yeah. have that thread you're yeah so if really you cool. if you're a journalist you just know every time you write something controversial or something critical of who's in power that somebody some party member could say oh enemy of the state as they have done they you know the obama administration has charged journalists with treason you know under the sedition act for doing their job so you know and, and there's Yes. A comment and a question. I mean, we're in a special case here in Cambridge. I happen to be three hops away from Tamerlan Tsarnaev. Right. Um, you know, so I'm sure I was swept up 
in the post-marathon bombing dragnet because it was a three-hot policy then. Right. Um, I, I don't know the guy. I know somebody you know whose kids went to school with him. Um, so it's you know it's that sort of thing where the dragnet um, you know just sort of sweeps in anybody. Do I care that the government you know knows who I've been emailing? Not really, but I also believe it should be doing that. Um, I also believe it's ineffective, and that sort of gets to the, the question part here. Um, I mean, if you look at the Inspector General's reports, et cetera, about the Tsarnaev thing, I mean, you see a government drowning in data. Um, you know, he was supposed to have been talked to when he left the country, but there were too many people on the list that day. Um, you know, for a customs official to actually stop him and ask him, you know, why he was going to Russia. Right. Um, so I think that's evidence that, you know, on the national security front, this isn't effective. But right. I really want to ask on the commercial front. I mean, if companies are dragnetting data, there are data brokers making money, but is, is there any proof that this is actually commercially effective for the companies, you know, that are doing it? Are they managing to sell more products, make higher profits? anything like this, or is this all just right. sort of a smoke and mirrors right. you know, scam that's going to collapse it? Well, I have to say, um, I have some sympathy for dragnetting, even though I've just written this book about the perils of dragnetting, because I feel it's a human tendency to hoard data, right? So I have a hard time deleting my emails. I feel kind of an emotional pain, right? And I'm sure this is what's happening at the NSA. They're just like, we, we don't actually know yet what we're going to do with this, but we just might eat it, right? And so I think that's basically what's happening commercially and governmentally, which is like, we just might need it. We don't know what we're going to need it for. But the truth is, you're correct. The evidence does not currently suggest that it's particularly effective at the tasks that it has been described to be effective for in particular terrorism, right? The data is pretty uh, clear so far. What we know, what the NSA said in response to um, the Snowden revelations was like, oh, here's these 54 attacks that were thwarted. And then like slowly it became 13 and eight and like it's kind of one or two, one. maybe it's one, it's one halfway something. And it's like, you know, so now they may have some secret other attacks that were thwarted they haven't told us about. So we don't know whether we've seen the full data set, but, but truthfully right now we don't have good data that this is working on the, counter-terrorism front, which is the one it's been described as being good for. Now, it may well be very good for other things they don't want to talk about, like creating informants, right? Because if you find people who have just done their minor things wrong and you want them to become an informant, like having that kind of information on them, very helpful, right? Now, we haven't heard that story. And then we could have a debate about whether we want to create a nation of informants. I think that's also important to talk, talk about. But on the commercial side, it's interesting. It's really described almost always as marketing. And the thing that's interesting about that is that theoretically all these targeted ads are going to make you want to buy things more. I find that they don't. I find that they don't make me buy things more. And the thing that's really interesting as a person who's covered the business of this for so long, there's so much data about there and about you out there that it's not scarce. So the price of your data is plummeting constantly to the point where all these companies are in a race to get more and more. So one reason Google and Facebook are constantly trying to up the ante is that they need to have more and more to show to advertisers because basically the baseline commodity is kind of everything you're doing online we already know. And so to get an edge, they need to keep going more. And so I'm not sure that it's really wi they're winning because they've made it into a commodity and then the prices are falling. So, of course, they'll argue that it's doing great. Um, 
But I think the jury is actually still out on that. I think scarcity would benefit, actually, because then if it was scarce, they could charge more for it. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, that was very interesting. Thank you very much. I have two observations and a question. Uh, on your question about is privacy the great luxury, 45 years ago, when Jackie Kennedy married Harry O'Nassie, it was put in context that he was one of the few people in the world because he owned an island who could do for privacy. <laughs> right. The, <laughs> the other is having survived in the McCarthy era of seeing what you could do with neutral data when you have a hostile government. That you can take these things out of context, they're your quote, but when they're perceived by an enemy, so to speak, that's how we got to McCarthy era. So I guess my question to you now is are you thinking about the impact of this on behavior? And are, because there seems to be almost an inverse relationship. There's more out there on Facebook, more people know about what's being collected about them, they're not being inhibited. Well, I look at it. Yeah, I agree with you that um, it, surveillance definitely affects behavior, and I've looked into the studies about what what does it actually do to affect behavior. What's interesting about it is the studies show that human peer to peer surveillance, you and I, each other watching each other in a room. Is very um, it, it definitely promotes social norms and people behave better, right? So I might spill my coke if you guys weren't here and leave it, right? But if you're here, I'm going to clean it up. <laughs> so um, and interestingly, the perception of human be of a human watching you, just pictures of eyes on the the wall, will still even raise behavior a little bit. What's but what's interesting is computerized surveillance, video and computer monitoring in this sort of technological realm. There hasn't been that much studies, but this one study in Finland was really interesting about these people who agreed to be surveilled in their homes for a year. Most of them couldn't hack it. They actually won, they quit. They were so anxious and stressed out about it. Even though all they, they knew it was for a study, they knew it was entirely benign, they knew the researchers were just these University of Finland researchers. Um, it was, it created a real chill in their ability to express themselves. And I think that that is what I'm worried about with surveillance, is that the fact that there's no, um, there are not any limits on what this data could be done, what could be done with it, means that we have to just logically be worried about the worst case scenario. And for me, the more I know about surveillance, the less willing I am to say anything, basically. Um, you know, my I just started a new job, and my boss was like, what is wrong with you in email? You just, you don't even, like, we write back these one-word answers. I was like, yeah, hello. <laughs> it's it's going to be documented forever. Like, we can talk in person. And, you know, that just is a sad thing. You know, that's what my parents came from the old world to the new world to avoid exactly that kind of fear. And um, so I guess I really worry about a culture of people being afraid to speak freely. And I think that there's this, you said that people share a lot on Facebook, but are they sharing diver, dis, you know, dissent? Are they sharing subversive views? Or are they just talking about how great their day was, right? I'm worried about a culture that allows for political dissent, because I think that's, the cult, that's what enables our democracy. I have an FBI agent in my class. Yeah. Uh, he was here at the Kennedy School. And he said that now at the FBI, if you have something to discuss about someone who is uh, they're considering pursuing, you do it in person. Yeah. You do not put any of it online. What's that? Sorry again. I think that's kind of curious. Yes, Chris. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good question. Um, I think that's a good question. 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 I think
questions actually. Um, David Grimm mm -hmm. and his, his concept of pseudovalence yep. as applied to anonymous WikiLeaks, Fortune, and all of those things. And also in the popular culture, you said Enemy of the State, which is the name of a movie mm -hmm. which talks about Faraday cages yep. and all this kind of stuff from the 90s. And Person of Interest and The Good Wife, both of these network shows, CBS, talk about this stuff in very real ways for television. Yep. So in the popular culture and David Brennan and his ideas of surveillance, subveillance, you know, intervalence, infravalence. <laughs> um, so let me talk about David Brin's surveillance because it's a really powerful idea. David Brin wrote this amazing book in, I want to say it was the late 80s, uh, late the 90s, late, uh, that called The Transparent Society that, honest to God, when you read it now, you're like, he predicted every single thing that was going to happen, including he literally said the towers were going to come down, the World Trade Center. It was shocking. And that there would be body scanners at every airport. Um, and he said, the only way we're going to sort of blunt the effects of this coming tide of surveillance is to watch the watchers. We have to surveil them as much as they surveil us, and that's going to keep them accountable. And look, as a journalist, I couldn't be more sympathetic to that. My, my job is to watch the watchers. I, I believe in that. However, right now, the problem is we have a power asymmetry. The people who have the power are basically criminalizing the watchers, right? Have you ever tried to take a video at TSA checkpoint? Yeah, they don't want to be watched, okay? Um, similarly, you know, anonymous, Barrett Brown, you name anybody uh, in this WikiLeaks, right? They're being prosecuted, right, for trying to watch the watchers. And yes, some of their techniques might have crossed the line, but I think you could argue that the government's techniques might have crossed the line because, you know, Congress was like, hello, we didn't know you were doing that NSA, right? So both sides are using every tool at their disposal. And so I wish that I could believe that a surveillance would be enough to thwart the power of the surveillance state, but I just don't know that every one of us wearing Google Glass is going to be enough. We don't have the same tools or legal power as the institutions that are trying to surveil us. And what about the, the popular? Well, popular, I mean, I think it's nice that popular culture is addressing these topics because I think uh, a growing awareness will lead to a growing debate. And I think we all have to solve this problem collectively. It can't just be anonymous <laughs> to solve the problem. Um, this comes from something that happens to me. I run my hard drive, one terabyte of data, um, to a place of fresh pond that they supposedly can recover the data. Mm -hmm. And they went through a whole uh, face recognition software for all my images. My images of all the astronauts got disappeared. Or President Clinton got disappeared. Oh. And, for copyright know, violations? No, because these were uh, taken up public places, or places where oh. pictures are not there for you can take a picture. So um, I am really concerned about that also because every third Sunday, MIT has this hackers market where you can see people driving away with all these hard drives. And, you know, I, I, I really feel like taking an ax to all my hard drives when I die before I die. <laughs> and, and this is really something that, you know, people are acquiring and what are they doing with it? And right. it's got everybody's kind of records and right. what can be done on the right. I have considered taking an axe to my hard drive, actually. Um, I recommend encryption as less violent <laughs> and more effective. I know. I had this really sad moment, though, where 
I was, I was, I realized I had brought my keys, my secret encryption key overseas. Actually, when I saw you in Switzerland, <laughs> I had brought it on a thumb drive, and I realized in the hotel room, and I thought, I'm going to have to destroy this thumb drive. And so I was in this hotel room, like, contemplating smashing it with the hotel lamp. And I thought, this is the saddest moment. Like, what is happening to my life? <laughs> but anyways, um, I think, look, to step back from your question about hard drive sales, because that is going to happen, the real question is, what, what can we do? And you asked this also. What can we do to, to make this situation better? And I t think of it the way I think of automobiles. Automobiles are extremely dangerous, and we get into them every single day and drive them. And the reason we do that is because we know they meet a minimum safety threshold. And they're tested, and they're regulated, and if you violate that, you're going to have to go in Congress and plead for your life, and then you're going to have to pay out millions to the victims, and then you're going to be sued till the end of time, right? And that is what makes this car makers try, in most cases, to do meet those safety standards. And then, let's say you want a Hummer because you're really into safety, then yeah, sure, buy your way up the luxury value chain and get something really big and robust. But right now, we don't have that level of minimum assurance with our data. I think if we really had that assurance, I would be perfectly happy to participate in this data economy. If somebody could just say, look, it's not going to be used for whatever, all the egregious things we've decided on, stalking and um, pricing you, sending you to, you know, terrible prices and to put you on the no-fly list and to chill your speech and to, you know, lock up people with the subversive views. If, like, there was some sort of blanket statement like that, that that, then I would be like, okay, sure, let's share. Let's, I want to be part of the sharing economy. But currently, I don't have any of those assurances. What is the state of computer forensics? I mean, if you, if, you know, you read about cases in which in criminal trials, you know, the hard drive has been erased, but they send it to some person who is an expert in computer forensics, and all of a sudden it's back again. I mean, is that is that reality, or is that... That's reality. Yep. yep. So you can't effectively... You can. The, the, so you, you have two different things. The question is, did the def what can you do, and what did the defendant do? Mm. And nothing, right? If, if nothing happens, right, the, the hard, most hard drives are thrown away or not erased, and whoever buys it gets all kinds of great stuff. People have done research projects on that. Uh, defendant might have erased his hard drive, and it's still available. You, I, you know, there's a, there are tools to, you can erase your hard drive such that the FBI will not get at it. Right. So you can just, yeah, you can use special tools. You can erase your stuff. To erase it, yeah. I mean, you know, if your drive is encrypted, it, it's really easy. You just throw away the key. Right. Which is, which is what I would recommend. Or smash it with a lamp. You do it with your flash drive. And just encrypt the damn thing. Do you have a true crypt on your machine? Back here. Yes. I think I'm just listening to the question. You. I think you, you are. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering if you could um, speak to the difference between kind of reporting on the commercial industry versus now the kind of, I'm assuming there's a shift towards consumer advocacy um, reporting uh, in the shift towards Um. Or, or Explain to me. Okay. Oh yeah, moving from Wall Street Journal to ProPublica. Yes, I was at the Wall Street Journal for 14 years, um, and I had a great run there. I ran this investigative team for three years. We did amazing work on privacy. Um, but the thing is, I was really, um, I really, as I'm a technology person in my heart, and what I, one of the ways I did most of this reporting was I, I basically stole from parts of the organization, um, computer 
programmer types and had them working as investigative journalists. And that was actually my contribution to my reporting, largely might have been that. That might be what history remembers me for, if anything. And so, um, but I was having a hard time getting those resources at the Wall Street Journal. Um, like any news organization, everyone's fighting for everything. And ProPublica has completely bought in to this idea of um, data investigative journalists who are programmers. There are 10 of them there. And I had to fight, yeah, I had to fight every year for half time of this program Rash Consultani and I would it took me six months to get his contract for the next six months and then I would fight for the next six months it was like a rolling thunder and then I got him to train one younger guy but then they took him off my stuff so for me it was actually I went where the tech expertise was because I think that the only way to watch the watchers is with technology you've got to use these tools in order to see what they're doing and you won't always be able to get every story that way I still do plenty of reporting in bars and garages or whatever, <laughs> flower pots, and we old school stuff. I do all that. But the technology is incredibly important also. And so that is, um, and this is no diss on the Wall Street Journal. They were great to me. But I, I feel like this is the vanguard of, of journalism is to do that kind of work. You and then you. Uh, I was wondering if there are any lessons to be learned from elsewhere in the world uh, uh, in terms of that's a good question. So one thing that we, we, we're the only Western nation, as far as I know, that doesn't have a baseline privacy law that, allow, that requires the commercial data gatherers to show you the information they have on you and let you correct it and in some cases delete it. And so just that simple baseline would be a vast improvement. Yes, that is true. Yes. Um, so Obama administration actually introduced a bill like that in 2012. They called it the Privacy Bill of Rights. It wasn't quite as strong as some of the ones in Europe and um, Canada, but it was a start in that direction, but it was opposed by industry, and the privacy advocates said it was too weak, and it died, and it hasn't been resuscitated. But I think there's a growing consensus. Industry like, meaning Google and such? Mm -hmm. Yeah, data, all data collectors, right, from the um, Equifaxes of the world to... I, I'm not actually sure where Google and Microsoft stood on that one, so... I could be wrong, but certainly the traditional mailing list data broker people, because they're the ones who are actually going to, they're the ones who wouldn't show me my data. Google actually shows me quite a bit of my data. They're actually fairly transparent. And Facebook, to some extent, does. They show you a portion of your data. Well, my question is, is a subset of hers, is there a, is there model legislation and a constituency of this country right now pressing towards these kind of baseline rights? Not really. Um, <laughs> right now, the fight is about the NSA, right? And I think that that fight is not even, it's not even clear where that's going to go. Um, but, you know, we have um, Congress saying the NSA phone dragnet basically overstepped what we intended when we wrote the Patriot Act. And um, there are 140 sponsors of the USA Freedom Act. And even that is not a done deal. It's, in fact, looking iffy whether that's going to pass. And that's just reform something that the president has said he wants to reform, that his two advisory committees have said they want to reform. So the fact that even that isn't going through, like there's right now no push on the commercial side, unfortunately, that I am aware Not of. Not even someone like Elizabeth Warren can get um, Yeah, you know, I think that it is something maybe for, it would be great if the CPFB got involved in this. What about the libertarians? Commercial is okay. Libertarians are, yeah. you agreed by, by that long thing you didn't read, that's your agreements. Therefore, libertarians are all in favor of this. You don't like it, don't use a credit card, don't use a cell phone. That's the libertarian bargain. Yes. Um, so, quick remark. 
Um, so the whole problem with tons of passwords and not remembering oh, them, yeah. there's actually something called a password wallet, which is a password for your passwords. So you can put all your passwords in there, and they're all encrypted, and you don't have to deal with Yeah, them. I do that. Yeah. Okay. I have that. So it's called, so I use a 1Password. I recommend yeah, yeah, yeah. LastPass which or KeepPass, uh, sorry. Password Save, pass. sorry. KeepPass? Yeah. You use one password? I use one password. I use one password. Password safe is mine. You can use Bruce's. His is called password safe. Yes, I highly recommend using a password manager. And then on the idea of having better defaults uh, for security or mm -hmm. better kind of like standards, uh, one example of this is nutrition labels, right? So mm -hmm. like if you read anything, you can know how much fat you're going to get or whatever. And so we need something similar that's like, uh, you know, here's all the information and uh, that we're going to share with other people. Displayed in a very standard way that must be shown to the user, etc. I think that would. I think it's unlikely, though. I mean, it's worth pointing out that those nutrition labels come on top of food safety standards, right? right. So already the food has to be edible and not kill you, <laughs> right? True. So I think that's all fine for like another level, but I'm seriously talking about this first level. Like, can we just get an assurance that our data won't be used to like? Again, kill us, right? Yeah. Or something like I would just like a few like things ruled out. Like I would like my children to like know that this isn't going to be used to deny them a job in twenty years, right? I would like my, myself to be known that this isn't going to be used to charge me higher prices at ten p.m. when I'm surfing the web and a little bleary eye, you know. So I'm kind of at that level, and then I'm like, sure, give yourself a nutrition label at the end of it. <laughs> and then the final thing is, don't you ever think that no information on you is actually way more suspicious? having tons of information. Absolutely. Right? Like if I were yeah. those people, the first thing I would look for is like who doesn't have, you know, every single thing that I do on here is got me on some list for sure of suspicious activity. And the NSA has specifically said that use of encryption is something they consider suspicious. Right. And that's so you're guilty but I don't being right. proven guilty. Sure. If I want to use their definition of guilty, but I don't think like so my I consider some of my actions of, of privacy protection as a form of protest. Right? They are, in fact, may not be effective at all. But I would like there to be some metrics that show that people care about privacy. They think it's completely within their rights to have an encrypted conversation with their mother that no one else in the world gets to listen to. And I still feel that that's a right I'm willing to fight for. And you think that there is no back door to that encryption process, that that really is as safe as... Uh... Look, I think we'll never... Here's what I have to say. If the NSA really, really wants you, you're toast. But I suspect they don't really, really want me. I'm just not really going to blow anything up, you know, I think. <laughs> and so, but most, yeah, for most purposes, encryption is fine because it makes it so hard for anybody to get it. Can I ask a quick question? Sure. For face recognition technology, is this, how, is that, they're going to, like, do that just through your camera on your computer or something? Well, facial recognition technology is basically can be embedded into any camera once it's good enough. And currently, it's it's not quite there. But you know, the FBI has said like they feel like starting what is it? I think it's next year that they're going to have it ready for prime time. Now, what that means, I don't know. But I think you know we're going to be rapidly entering an era in the next five years. I think where essentially everyone will have a camera. It will be accessible to everyone. Like you and I will have a phone a thing on our phone. We hold it up to each other and like just pull up our dossiers about each other. You walk by someone in the street, this will be available. Yes, I think this is, this is absolutely coming. 
That's right. When you walk into a store. And you walk into a store. It will, the camera will read mm -hmm. you. Yes. And, and that's if you view Skype once, if they've got you then. No, if you exist in the universe. If you exist. <laughs> you, there's no, are you. What is it, you Skype? Do you have a driver's license? <laughs> right. I mean, Skype? unless you have lived in a cave in the woods and like never been there photographed. There are thousands of text photos of, photos of you on Facebook right now that you didn't take. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. Yeah. The world does this to you. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. One final. <laughs> You've managed to make it through this entire talk without uttering the phrase big data, for which I commend you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, could, I, didn't, I couldn't have done that. You're right. Um, Yay. But that, I mean, that, that seems to be sort of the next level of data use with promises of, you know, prediction and a level that, you know. Right. So I'll tell you what big data is. Data is data you hoarded for purposes you don't know what to do with, and then you look through it for correlations. Yes, and then, yeah, put that in your book, quote me. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, that's what it is, right? And then you look for correlations, and you're like, whoa, that's so weird. Like, people who drink Diet Coke are also interested in privacy. Like, maybe there's something going on there. And, like, most of those correlations are not true, but some of them might be. And to be honest, like the stat statistics as a field has already dealt with this problem with sample size and understanding what population you're looking for. And it's still not a bad idea to use big data in some cases, but I think we're still all waiting to see when and where it's going to be appropriate. And I think surveillance is one where I would think that the cost to our civil liberties is still too high for any of the benefits that have not been yet shown to be there. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you.